all right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and let's get going. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this morning and the opportunity to come together and to, uh, to learn more about you, to learn more about your word, uh, to learn more about how to live. Uh, we, we praise you for that. We ask, uh, just thank you for the opportunities that you've given, um, even with Rachel, with a colleague, and just uh, hopefully uh, a door there for further conversations of right and wrong comes from you, and uh, you... Uh, you would have us um, behave in a certain way to, um, as your people, but even, even you've written the law on our hearts, even on the consciences of unbelievers, O oh Lord God. So we just pray that there would be further opportunities with Rachel, um, with her colleague. Uh, Lord, we pray for um, Ken, and, and just thank you for the, um, even the opportunity to kind of broach uh, the subject of you and what um, even language that is pleasing or not pleasing to you. Uh, with a client. Lord, I pray there would be further opportunities for the conversation and that you draw these people to yourself for the sake of your glory, the sake of your name. Bless our time this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, so um, we're still talking about holiness. Um, we've talked, just to give you kind of the broad sweep, right, from the Old Testament to New Testament, we've talked about that reality when God saves his people, he designates them as holy. They are set apart from the realm of the common to the realm of the holy to be used uh, for his purposes. And so we spent a lot of time developing that. Uh, but then uh, we start seeing, I mean, Old Testament and New Testament, you see, okay, if that's who you are, that's who you're designated to be, you need to live up to that. You need to live that out. You need to live that identity out. And so uh, the question is, how do you reflect that holiness in an increasing manner, right? You're already designated as holy. How do you reflect that in an increasing way? And really, the, to, recount a couch, to recouch that a little bit, uh, how do you transform? How do you grow? How do you actually transform as a person? Uh, because we start as, uh, everyone starts as a sinner. Uh, we all are sinners. Um, and yet now, in through Christ and through his sacrifice, uh, through him paying our sin debt, through him giving us a righteousness, he's not only cleansed us from sin, he's sanctified us, uh, called us to be priests, and we're waiting till the final end of perfection in his presence uh, forever. But how do you transform? How do you grow? Um, and so we talked, we ended last week really talking about the core of that when Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3 through, well, he's really doing it through a, lot of, a large portion of 2 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians 3 through 4, 6 is what we looked at. And uh, what, what, uh, what did we find out about how transformation works? So Paul's talking about the new covenant uh, that that reality of everyone in this covenant is going to know God. Uh, Christ is going to, uh, or Christ is going to sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in every person in the new covenant to cause them to obey. And so Paul's talking about those realities in 2 Corinthians three through four six. But what do we see? How how does transformation happen uh, according to Paul in that passage? Just for a little bit of review, how does transformation happen at a core level? Where do we see the language of transformation in that passage? It's a key verse where it really kind of hinges on the whole thing. Yeah, we're in 2 Corinthians 3 through chapter 4, verse 6. So uh, it's talking about the realities of the new covenant, um, talking about the work of the Spirit. Uh, but he talks about transformation, and there's one key verse in particular that kind of hinges on, in the whole section talking about transformation. 
uh, let's see, verse 6 is, who's made us sufficient. So is this, oh, are you talking 4-6 or 3-6? 3-6. Okay, so uh, Paul says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so, yeah, Paul is contrasting the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Uh, the Old Covenant, it's not bad. Uh, it's just that it's not batteries included. Batteries not included uh, for change, right? Uh, there is some degree of change. I think we can see we talked about change in the Old Testament. How did change happen? Well, the idea was dwelling in uh, God's presence, um, God's glory, right? As God's glory, uh, you would dwell in God's glory. You beheld God's glory. It would change you. It changed Moses, which is what what um, uh, he talks about, right? Moses sees uh, a, ver- a, a afterglow of God's glory, and it changes him. It literally changes him. Um, and then Paul builds on that, and there's a key verse uh, that he, he, where he's talking about we are being transformed. Which verse? 18, exactly. So he builds this whole case, this contrast between Old Covenant, New Covenant, um, uh, Moses and Paul. And he says this, uh, uh, where he's, uh, Paul's applying this to all believers. He says, and we all, all believers with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image uh, from glory into glory. Uh, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in context, you remember, when did Moses unveil his face? He unveiled his face to go talk to God, but then he came out. He still had an unveiled face when he's revealing God's word. He's He's talking to God, essentially, and then he comes back and he relays that. Well, that's the idea here, that that through the new covenant, through the proclamation of the gospel in particular, uh, God's glory is reflected. So the word is the mirror. We see through the word Christ's glory and who he is and all his majesty, all his glory. He goes on to talk about that in chapter 4, verse 6. So God's glory is reflected through the word and rebounded to our being, right? And that's what he's talking about. Through that through the proclamation of the word, through particularly through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, we are changed. Not just once, but in an ongoing way. Not just one and done at the beginning of the Christian life, but in an ongoing way. We, we see Christ's glory through the gospel, and we are changed. And he goes on to describe that in chapter 4, verse 6. So at a core level, and the new covenant, every change that we have boils down to seeing the glory of Christ through the gospel. Now, that does not, it's not like we're just sitting there and kind of just looking, um, but what we are doing is as we read the word, as we read even commands of scripture, we are seeking to see this through the lens of Christ, and we know that only through Christ, only through his work, through the gospel, only through his work, through the spirit, is there actual change. So every change and transformation that we talk about in the new covenant ultimately boils down to being conformed to the image of Christ. And how do we do that? Seeing his glory through the word, seeing his glory through the scriptures, all the scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament, um, his glory is manifested. And when you turn to the Lord, that you, you see that, okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Because we need that. That is, that is essential for you to get uh, as we're talking about growing and transforming in holiness. Any questions or comments? Okay, now... Uh, we also left off talking about this. Uh, what are we transformed into? 
What's in? Yeah, Emily uh, said it right in, uh, I think, uh, was it you, Julie? That, oh, so, someone was saying it, right? Oh, Pat was saying it, right? The same image, right? The same image of Christ. Now, we think about this. Where does that language of image, why, that's a really powerful word, right? It should conjure up a lot of uh, connotations. In particular, what should it remind us of? Genesis, right? So turn back just briefly. Let's just, we didn't, we didn't get to do it last week. We're short on time, but just to remind ourselves, go back to humanity's initial commission, right? Uh, this is humanity's, like, who we are, Genesis 1, through 28. So someone go ahead and read that. Yeah. So uh, here's where we get the fundamental definition of what it means to be in the image of God. And there's an there's a there's a context um, that Moses and his audience would have understood when he wrote that of the king of the nation is the image of the God. He's the representative of, of God. Um, he's, he's got a relationship with the God uh, vertically, and then he's supposed to uh, manifest uh, and uh, seek the God's aims horizontally. Okay, So that la- language of image would have been familiar to Moses and his audience. But what do you see there in the text of Genesis 1, 26 to 28? What does it mean to be God's image? What do you do as God's image? Yes, uh, so said stewardship. Stewardship, and Rachel, you said? Exercise of dominion, which is, it's both, it's one and the same, right? So it's a stewardship dominion. It's not a willy-nilly, do whatever you want with creation. It's under God, as the ultimate king, Adam and Eve are to be rulers to, um, to, to steward God's creation, to reshape it, to form it, to organize it, in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God, okay? So that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, Remember what we've talked about before. Eden is the prototypical temple, right? So God puts the image in the temple to manage the temple and to steward the temple and even to grow and expand the temple out to the edges of the world, which intersects with our ideas of holiness, doesn't it, right? Being an image bearer means you're a king and a priest, being an image bearer means fundamentally our mission is that of kings and rulers, kings and queens and priests, uh, to stewardship God's rule. Okay? Um, now, we know the fall shatters that image. It mars it. It's not gone. The image of God is not gone in man, but it's marred. It's distorted. And yet, what did we just see in 2 Corinthians 3? In our fundamental transformation, when we're in Christ, when we've entrusted ourselves to Christ, what is being restored? Yeah, Christ's image, right? He's remaking us into the humans we were always supposed to be. Um, he's giving us back that, that, um, that uh, I, he's given us back that identity as kings and priests under him, 
uh, to steward God's rule. So when we talk about transformation, we're talking about fundamentally a transformation back to the way we were always supposed to be as kings and priests. And as kings and priests, we're to be a what? A holy people. That's just built into what it means in this transformation. But we want to unpack, as we go forward, we want to unpack, okay, we're, we're being transformed back into this image, this image of holiness, this image of being kings and priests for God's glory. How does that work? Uh, uh, Christ has designated us as holy, but how does the practical transformation happen? Uh, How do we live up to what God has called us to do? Okay, any questions or comments up to this point? Is this making sense? Yeah, Leo. A slight one, yes. I I would argue that, yeah, so those terms, this is where, um, well, it's part of the whole argument for seeing a covenant in with Adam. Um, is those terms of image and likeness were understood in Moses' day as covenant terms. So, like I said, um, let's just think of Egypt. So the pharaoh, the pharaoh is the king, right? Well, the pharaoh was said to be the image of the god. So the image language is, uh, uh, oh, sorry, yeah. So the image of the god and the likeness of the god. The likeness language, um, that actually, you see that later in Genesis, Genesis 5. It says that Seth is in, after the likeness of his dad of adam so that's a that's a that's a father-son relationship that language of likeness is a father-son sort of relationship so in genesis 126 that's indicating that god and his image bearers adam and eve there's a father child relationship happening there that's the image that's the likeness side of thing it's a vertical word image and this kind of makes sense right if you think about imaging uh, it'd be like statues, right? You've got statues of the God all over the ancient world, or even statues of the king in his dominions, what? To show, I reign here. It's a very horizontal word, right? So you've got a vertical word of likeness, and then a hor- uh, which conveys a son, da- uh, um, son or daughter to, go- uh, to father relationship, which then permeates scripture. It forms part of the backdrop of what it means to be the son of God. Uh, and then... There's this, uh, this idea of image, which is horizontal. It's, it's the mirroring out uh, of and representation of God to the world. Um, so there is a difference between those two words. I'm glad you asked that question. It's a good question. Yeah, um, uh, Ken. Yeah, my mind, my mind was trying to catch up. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be the idea that you see. You see, you see a very concrete picture of this in Genesis five because it describes Seth as the likeness of Adam. He bore a son in his own likeness, after as his image, right? So uh, Seth is uh, looks like Adam. Um, he's also got a role. Uh, the commission that Adam received that gets passed on to Seth to image uh, in a similar sort of sort of way. Okay. Um, so that, but that's essential, right, to understand those terms, because really that forms the backdrop of who we are as humans. Uh, and then what we see is, as a redeemed humanity, that's central to what Christ is doing. Christ is the ultimate human, isn't he? Certainly he is the God and man, but he is the ultimate man, right? Uh, he is the image that we were always supposed to be. He is the king and priest that we were, uh, that we were supposed to be. And as we co- become united with him, by faith, right, we are able to recover by his grace, through God's work, through the spirit, through the new covenant, all those things 
to recover that image-bearing responsibility of kings and priests. Uh, which, again, think about the distinction, one of the key distinctions between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. Uh, how many are, who are the priests in Israel, the Old Covenant? Yeah, the Levites, right? And even within the Levites, you've got a particular tribe. And even within that particular tribe, you've got the sons of Aaron. And even within the sons of Aaron, you've got one, right? Um, and, but in the New Covenant, everyone is a king and priest. We've already said that, right? That's part of, in Hebrews, it talks about uh, draw near. Draw near to the Holy of Holies. Why? Because now you've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've been consecrated to God's service as kings and priests. Uh, so we're all together. Uh, this even intersects with what we're talking about with the church, right? Uh, Christ has given to his church a stewardship authority as kings and priests to honor and worship God and to guard, uh, to guard the, the church. So, and that's a whole group um, uh, job. It, yes, it is for the elders, but it's also a whole group job. So you kind of see how these things all intertwine. Okay, so the big question is, how do we transform? How do we grow? Uh, what does that look like to transform? At a core level, it looks like seeing Christ's glory reflected through the word, reflected through the gospel, and then that changes us. But that doesn't mean we don't exercise effort. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and body, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what do we do, even as we know the Spirit is working, uh, to grow and to transform in holiness? So I want to take you to a few places. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Titus. So we're going to stick with Paul for a little while. Um, go to Titus 2. And in Titus 2, Titus is, or Paul is telling Titus about, like, here's what all these different relationships um, that you have should look like. There's, uh, this is what it should look like, older men to younger men, older women to younger women. But he kind of summarizes all of this of, like, here's what, it's, you, here's what it looks like to be an older woman. Here's what it looks like to be an older man. Here's what it looks like to be a younger man. Here's what it looks like to be all of those categories, right? Even slaves. But then um, he, he, he kind of encapsulate all of it in 11 through 14. Uh, so someone go ahead and re read um, verses 11 through 14 in Titus 2. Good. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, what has appeared in verse 11? Grace of God has appeared. This is the word uh, epiphano, uh, epiphano, epiphany. Uh, this, this is the idea. God's grace has exploded onto the scene, right? In what way? How has God's grace appeared? Yeah, bringing salvation for people. How? Through Christ. And he describes that even later in verse 14 who gave himself for us in order to redeem us 
uh, to redeem uh, us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people uh, for his own possession, zealous for good works, right? So that's what God's grace is. Christ has come. He is, he is. now just focusing on verse 14, because this is really describing this grace that's appeared. What has Christ done in verse 14? What does it say? Yeah, he's redeemed us. Redeemed us from what? Lawlessness, right? From living however we want, not under God's law. Um, he's redeemed us from lawlessness, okay? What else does it say? Gave himself, right? That sacrificial language. He's our substitute on our behalf um, so, that, uh, so that we can be redeemed, right? He's our substitute. He not only paid our debt of sin, he's also given us his lived-in-flesh righteousness accredited to us so that uh, uh, we can stand before God. But notice, it's not just position here, it's also transformation, isn't it, right? Because he's redeemed us from lawlessness. In other words, he's a salvation that just left you in your sin and doing your sin wouldn't be a good salvation. And Christ didn't leave us there. He's redeemed us from all lawlessness. Okay? What else do you see in verse 14? Purified. Yeah, and purified who? Okay. Yeah, what word does he use specifically? Yeah, his people. Christ redeemed a people. Christ isn't just interested in individuals, he very much is, but he is also interested in his people. He's cleansing a people uh, for himself, for his own possession. Uh, Christ gave himself to uh, cleanse, that, that's Old Testament language, isn't it, right? Cleanse from your sin so that you can ultimately be sanctified and be brought into God's presence. Uh, so we see that there, he's cleansed for himself a people uh, for his own possession, zealous for good works, right? So Christ has saved us not only positionally, but to be his and to live in a holy way. We've known that. We've talked about that. But how does it work? How does it work? Look at verse, uh, someone read verse 11 um, and just 12 again. Okay, so how does this work? God's grace appears, then what happens? What does God's grace do? Trains us. Trains us to do what? Yeah, to renounce sin, to renounce our lawlessness, to use that later word, uh, to renounce worldly lusts, worldly passions, our desires. We do what we do because we want what we want. Uh, God, what, what, what helps us renounce those passions? True, but in context, what, what is he pegging? Like, what helps you train you? Well, yeah, but what, what, what does the text say trains us? Well, what does the text say that the specific word, someone said it, what the grace of God trains us? Now, think about that for a minute. God's grace trains us. Fundamentally, right, what trains us to change is not just saying, don't do this, do do this, don't do this, do do this. Now, that's necessary, but what trains us is God's grace. Yeah, James. Yeah. 
Well, it could, yeah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. So um, turn to Ephesians just briefly, because that'll help us with that, that um, understanding of what is he talking about when he talks about worldly passions. Um, and turn to Ephesians 2, another key passage on grace, right? Another description of God's grace um, in life. But Ephesians 2, listen to this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and actually we're going to, probably not this week, but next week we're going to talk about Ephesians 4, which is also going to link back to this, but listen to what he says in Ephesians 2. And you were, so this is your position, this is everyone before coming to faith in Christ, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, doing what? Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, all the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's a very broad description, right? Uh, think of who we are outside of Christ. Who we are outside of Christ um, is we are ruled by our passions, uh, by doing what we want. So it's not like any one specific thing. It can look like any number of innumerable things. But what the, what the core is, is the selfishness, the self-directedness, the des self-desire, rather than, I'm just doing what I want. I do whatever the heck I want, um, and uh, uh, that's what it means to live in the lusts of the flesh. You're doing the desires of the body and the mind. Whatever your mind tells you to do, whatever longings your body has, uh, you're under your own control. And Well, you think you are. Ultimately, he says you're under the control of Satan, um, but you are living that way. So when he's talking back in Titus, he's saying, uh, he's talking about uh, teaching us the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He's saying that's who we naturally are. And we still have those desires, don't we? Uh, don't we still feel that pull? That's his temptation, right? We have our own desires, as James talks about it, our, our uh, idiosyncratic lusts, the things that we are pulled towards. We still have that pull, and yet, uh, and that's the same thing we experienced in a sense before, before uh, we were saved, except then we were enslaved, now we're not enslaved. Then we didn't have the choice to say no, now we have the option of saying no through the power of God, and specifically in Titus 2, um, God's grace. God's grace trains us. God's grace trains us to renounce uh, ungodliness. Now let's meditate on that for a minute. How is it that God's grace trains us? How is it that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness? Yeah. Yeah, so, so there's, there's a difference. Uh, what, what is it about God's grace? And here, God's grace is defined, really, in verse 14. Christ came, he gave himself for us, he's purchased us for himself. How does God's grace train us? How does God's... Think about what, what is grace? Yeah, the favor of God. Well said, right? It's God's favor. Uh, undeserved, right? No one deserves God's favor, um, but it's the favor of God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God through Christ that trains us. It trains us. Th this word for training is, is like a coach. 
coach, uh, if you've had a good coach in your life, right, a good coach uh, is going to be tender and tough on you. He's going to praise you when you do well, but he's also going to be tough on you to bring you to that full, um, the fullness of your ability, right, in that sense. So this is, uh, or another way to think about this, this is the training of a father to children. Uh, a father, di- a good father disciplines children, uh, but for what purpose? For their good, uh, for their growth. Um, so this is this kind of training, training like a coach, training like a father. How does God's grace train us? True. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so we've got the power of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the new covenant. Uh, we've got the word, as we've been talking about, even in 2 Corinthians 3. But honing in on grace, God's unmerited favor to us, how, how does that, yeah, Pat? Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's, if we think about God's grace, right, he, it's a, really it's a shorthand way of describing the gospel, which he kind of just relays out in verse 14, right? It's the gospel. It's the gospel again, isn't it, right? That the gospel, you could say it this way, the gospel trains us. That's where God's grace is seen, right? That, that we, this is why we need the gospel every day, right, to remind ourselves, who are we? What have we been brought out of? Uh, what have we been brought into? What was the price that was paid for that? Uh, what is, who has is Christ called us to be? He's called us to be a holy people, a people that are zealous for good works, a people that uh, uh, renounce ungodliness, uh, a people, not just individuals, but a people who are to be this. Um, and we think, of, we think of all that, we meditate on that, and Rachel's right, it changes our affections, right? Our, the deepest desires that we have, um, in our life. We have a desire to sin. And he's saying that's gonna, grace is going to train us to renounce that. Why? Because we love Christ. Because of what he has done. Because of who he is. What he's called us to be. We meditate on that. We think about that over and over and over again. And when we see the loveliness of Christ. When we see the loveliness of the gospel. It's like I don't want to go back to sin. I don't want to go back to the way I was before. Uh, Christ has, it hasn't called me to live that way. He's called me out of that. I don't want to go there. And so I want to renounce these things. I want to put off sin and put on uh, righteousness. Um, so he says, renouncing uh, ungodliness and worldly passions. And then he says, what? What are we supposed to live like? So get rid of that and live like what? Self-controlled. Self-controlled. Upright and godly lives. Upright and godly lives. Yeah, Susan. Yes. 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 
Right. Yeah, and I love this passage, too, because just like you're saying, right, it shows that Christ, Christ doesn't want to just leave us in a position of righteousness. He does that, right? But he also wants us to grow. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to change. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, and it's that whole trajectory that we've seen, right? It's, it's, you've got, Christians are motivated by, we live in the middle, don't we? We live in the middle, and we're motivated by two grand comings, right? One is the grace of God appearing. You, you see them both here. They both use the same word, appearing, even as Tony has pointed out the other one, right? There's two of them. There's the appearing of God's grace, and then, uh, it, you know, God's grace has appeared. It happened, but then there's another one. The, we're waiting for uh, the, uh, our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, right? So God's grace has appeared and it will appear. And we live in the middle, right, where we realize, okay, God has called us to this standing. We're to grow and progress. We're to be trained to live this way. But the other thing that motivates us is not merely looking behind. We do that, but we also look forward. Because what's forward is the prize, what Christ has called us to. Uh, and, and just like Tony's saying, that's our hope. And what's the hope? Dwelling in God's glory. You see that glory language, right? Basking in God's glory for all eternity, enjoying him, delighting in him, having him as our greatest, most satisfying joy. That's always how we were designed to be in eternity. So both of those things, uh, they really, uh, we look back and we look forward to keep growing in the Christian life, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, other questions or comments on this? So the main takeaway from this passage, God's grace trains us, uh, his appearing, train, you know, what, how he has appeared trains us, and even looking ahead to the future, it trains us, right? All of those work together to keep us growing, to keep transforming. It's the same thing we see in 2 Corinthians 3, right? We see the gospel, we see the glory of Christ through the, the gospel, and that trains us. That's why we need to keep coming back. If you want to keep being transformed, you've got to keep anchored in the gospel and keep rehearsing the gospel because that's going to train you 
because of what Christ has done. It motivates you to put it back the way that Rachel has said. Okay, we got a couple minutes. Um, Do we have time? Well, let's go ahead and go to uh, Romans 12. Just another, you guys know this passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But the same realities... Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, what, ha- what happened in Romans 1 through 11? Basic, basic, what happened? Faith. Yeah, faith and particularly faith in all of what Christ has done, the gospel, right? Uh, the mercies of God, in other words, is what was portrayed in Romans 1 through 11. And then you get this huge turning point in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, huge, tiny word, big hinge, uh, big doors swinging on that little hinge. Uh, I appeal to you, brothers, on account of the mercies or through the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? We just said it. Yeah, God's grace, hope, um, all that Christ has done in the gospel. Like he's laid that out in Romans 1 through 11 in multiple ways, from multiple angles. It's God's mercies. Okay? So he's making his appeal on what basis? On, on the gospel, on God's mercies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's, Paul is saying, all right, based on all that you've seen, I'm going to make an appeal to you, and I'm going to appeal to you through the mercies of God, through the gospel. And what's he appealing for? What does he say? Yeah. Yeah. What's the text say? How does it say it? Yeah, to do what? To present your bodies, which is just a way of describing your whole being in this case, right? Present your whole being as what? Yeah, a sacrifice. Living, holy. So it's living in the sense that uh, I don't need to, well, uh, as I live my life, I'm living my life uh, in a sacrificial way. I'm, I'm dedicated, I'm devoted to, to what God's doing, right? Holy, right? That, that's the key concept we've been talking about, right? That um, God, Christ has called me out of the common into the uncommon. He's called me to himself. Uh, so on that basis, but also in how I reflect that holiness in my life. I'm a sacrifice living holy in my character and my deportment and who I am uh, and reflecting that holiness and well-pleasing to God, right? Um, Again, based on what Christ has done, and then living up to that uh, with, with my life. Um, present your bodies as a living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice to God. And what does he say that is? What is that when you do that? Yeah, it's your... Uh, I think the NASB maybe says reasonable uh, worship, or reasonable service. Is that how it translates it? King James. Oh, King James. Okay. Whoa. 
yeah, so some translate, ESV has spiritual, uh, other translations have it as reasonable. It's actually a hard word uh, to get across. It's, um, it's the word laga, uh, laga k in this case, uh, which is where we get the idea of logic. Um, so uh, you, yeah, is this the, the logical service or there were overtones in how it was used in extra biblical literature of spiritual, right, the internal? Um, I think based on what he's saying, it's like he's saying this is your reasonable, this is the logical thing to do. <laughs> it's your logical uh, service. Um, it's, it, it makes sense because of the mercies of God and what he has done. Uh, here's what you do your whole life, all of your life. And you hear, think about this for a minute, right? He's saying you don't hold anything back, right? Like every moment, there's no moment or part of your life that's your own anymore. Right? That's what it means to be a sacrifice. It's, uh, that sacrifice is totally devoted to God on the altar. Right? Totally devoted. There's, there's no part of that animal's life or body anymore that it's its own. It's dedicated to God. And he's saying your whole life is that. You're a living sacrifice. Um, and it makes sense. It's the only reasonable service um, because of the mercies of God, because of the reality of the gospel. Again, you see the same dynamic. It's the gospel... That's training us to live this way. If we understand the gospel and we keep going back to the gospel, right, it helps us to say, okay, then it's only reasonable that I live this way. Not as if we're paying God back. Can we ever pay God back for what he's done? Never. Absolutely not. May it never be. Um, but uh, we, again, it's that reality of you, you, you were the janitor at a massive company and then all of a sudden you got promoted to upper management. Uh, and you want to live up to that reality, right? You want to honor the one who gave you such such a gift, right? And God gives us the the means and the grace to to do that increasingly, though not perfectly, in this life. So, uh, and then verse two. What does it verse two say? Absolutely. So there's our word for transformation again, isn't it? Right? Uh, so he does a not and a, and a positive, right? So what are we not supposed to do? Don't be conformed to, literally, it's don't be conformed to this age. Right? Don't be conformed to this age. Uh, what do you have to do to be conformed to this age? Nothing. Just, just kind of live and breathe the cultural air, right? Yeah, continue in sin. Just, just live your life how everyone else does, and you'll be conformed to this age, right? Live for yourself. Do what you want to do, and you'll be conformed to this age, right? And he's saying, okay, that's the natural state. You gotta, you gotta break out of that mold, right? You gotta break out of that. God's grace gives us the ability to do that, and so don't be conformed, but what? Be transformed. How? Growing of the mind, right? The thinking, not just the thinking, but certainly the thinking. Um, how do we do that in a broader scope of Scripture? How do we have our mind transformed? Yeah, by dwelling in the book, right? Like, we need truth. Go back to that picture in Second Corinthians 3. God's glory, the glory of Christ, is reflected through the mirror of his word. God's glory is transformative, just like Moses' face. It transforms us. It renews our mind. Who's the agent of that renewal? Holy Spirit, who's dwelling in us. That's the new covenant promise, right? He's causing us to obey. 
He illumines our minds. He helps us to understand and apply the scriptures in order to do what the end of verse 2 is saying, to, to test or to approve by testing what is the will of God, the good and, uh, and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. Meaning, that's just another way of describing um, what does God's word say? It's not the mystical God's will lily pad that I'm trying to jump on with my life. It's, no, what does God say in his word? I need to understand that. I need to mull over it. I need to test it. Uh, not like you're testing God's word, but you're just trying to discern what is God's word? What would he have me do? Um, and we need the scriptures so that our minds renewed, so that ultimately we're transformed. Eden, you had your hand up. Right, right. And, and this is really working on our thinking, isn't it? Like, it is working on more than that because our thinking is tied to our emotions, which tied to our affections. It's all, it's, we're, we're complex creatures that God has built and we're all together. But in this, his focus here is thinking, thinking right? How do we think? And we think we want to think in accord with God's word. Um, so the battle for the Christian life, the battle for transformation is, is a battle of the mind. Uh, it really is in a lot of ways because that's where our desires are, our affections, all of that. So, okay, questions as we close out, um, comments as we kind of finish. Yeah, David. Yeah, and in those cases, that's where you see people that are, they're, we're always, we're designed to be infatuated with glory. We are designed to be a worshiping people. So we will be captivated by a glory. We will either be captivated by the glory of the world, this age, other men, and what can we can receive from other men, or we're going to be captivated by God's glory. Um, and... Uh, how do we keep on track? Because we're, we're easily led back into being captivated by the glory of the world because that's how we started, right? But we come back to the glory of Christ displayed in the gospel over and over and over again, and then we're seeking, it keeps us on the track of seeking the glory of God, right? Um, setting our hope on the glory that Christ has purchased for us. So, yeah, good, good verse. All right, let's, uh, let's, I'm sure there's much more we could say. Keep thinking, keep meditating, um, keep asking questions. Uh, let's, let's pray, though, and prepare our hearts for uh, the gathering of the saints.
Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you so, so, so much for your grace and for rescuing us, uh, for pulling us out of uh, being infatuated with false glories and pitiful things and instead calling us to be infatuated with you and your glory. Um, Lord, we desire you. We desire to follow you because you are the greatest treasure. You are the greatest joy. Um, train us. Lord, train us through your grace. Help us to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures. Help us to hate those things and to love your way. Uh, renew our minds through the scriptures. Even as we get to see the scriptures this morning, read, sung, preached, Lord, we, we pray that you would transform our minds. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us and in your people? You redeem for yourself a people not just individuals, but also a people for yourself. And we thank you for that. We thank you for bringing us together as a church now uh, very soon. We long for that. We look forward to that. In Christ's name, amen.